Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this message, you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of God and grow in your love for God and love for others. It is God's desire for us to be members of and regularly participate in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you are not attending a local church right now, we encourage you to take that step. If you do live in the North York area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to visit us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings to discern if this is the church God is leading you to. My text for today is Philemon, and we're continuing on the series that we started last week, and Brother Sharon, Pastor Sharon, was, um, did the first half, and today I feel like I am in, I'm in a relay, and I'm grabbing the baton from him, and then he will complete it um, next week. So let me read from verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake... I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me but how much more to you, but both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Um, Let me pray. Father, we we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, um, just how... Wonderful it is, Lord, to just lift our voices to you. Father, we recognize for some that this uh, message that you have laid on my heart might be all that we have as spiritual food for the week that is um, coming. But Father, I pray that you would just um, open our hearts, Lord, to receive your word. Help us, Lord, to realize that It's not about us. Life is not about us. We're just a part of a much larger story, your story. Help us, Lord, to to really um, listen and to apply what it is that your word is saying to us. In your name I pray, amen. Now, um, this epistle um, to Philemon strikes me as a model of relational delicacy, skill, and balance. Paul had some real difficulties to overcome. First, he was the friend of both Philemon and Onesimus. He must win over Philemon, who has good reason to be offended at what Onesimus had done. He must also recommend Onesimus without ignoring his sin. 
and at the same time not getting on Philemon's nerves while doing so. He must advocate for the new idea of Christian equality in the face of a system which hardly recognized the humanity of the enslaved. Lastly, he must decide between appeal or command, pulling at the hard strings or relying on his rank as apostle. There's much to learn about what it is that Paul is trying to get Philemon to do. Not only that, but the way he goes about it is important too. So the title of my message today is An Appeal to Do the Right Thing. Now, for those of us who um, have read through um, Paul's letters, he usually starts them by highlighting the fact that he is an apostle. In Ephesians, Galatians, Corinthians, he mentions this in the first few verses. But here in this letter, he makes no direct mention of this fact. It could be because he wanted to level the playing field by implying Philemon, see, I'm not using rank. So brother, I'm not expecting you to use your rank as master in this situation. He, however, does give a passing glance of the fact that he's an apostle. In verse 8, he says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. It is as if he's saying to Philemon, Listen, brother, Christianity did not make me into a punk. I could command you, but instead I have chosen to appeal to you from the heart. This epistle gives me the feeling of a kind of setup. Like a wife saying to her husband, Honey, you're such a wonderful father. A good man. I don't know how anyone lives without you. You are perfect. Now clean the kitchen for me now. Here you have a wife buttering up her husband to do something that she knows is a good thing for him to do, even though he might not be feeling it at the moment. So you know, I'm not saying I am that man. In the text, Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is intentional about being relational. He's not pulling rank as those with authority typically do. He's making an appeal. Now, I have two points for us today, and they are both questions. We'll attempt to answer those questions. The first question is, what does a good appeal look like? What does a good appeal look like? So I guess you know by now that I think Paul is really good at human interactions. He's a relational guy. He knows when to pull punches, and he knows when to spare blushes. He is here in this text, text using masterful, Holy Spirit-inspired brushstrokes to paint a vivid, true picture of what he believes Philemon is like, and then he expects Philemon to embody those beliefs. Why is Paul able to do this? He's well aware of Philemon's character. In fact, he was the one who the Holy Spirit um, used to bring him to Christ. And next thing, and I think more importantly, Paul has experienced firsthand the transforming power of the gospel. 
Just think for a moment of who Paul was, what he did, and who he is at this particular time. He has gone from darkness to light, from enemy to emissary. He has been transformed. As a Jamaican grandmother would say, God knocks sense in him head. <laughs> so what does a good appeal look like? First, we tell how we feel about the person. Verse 10 to 12. And says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Now Paul refers to Onesimus as his child. Now I have two sons, Liam and David. And if they need my attention and they say, hey dad, um, first of all, I just love the sound of that. Hey, dad. I usually answer, yes, son. Not yes, Liam, or yes, David. My use of the word son helps me remember that I have a God-given privilege and responsibility as a father. In fact, it's a word that comes straight from my heart. Now, if I answer, yes, Liam, or yes, David, they know something might be up. Paul is saying that Onesimus is his son. What a wonderful picture of what Onesimus meant to him. You see, when Paul was in prison, somehow he crossed paths with Onesimus, presented the gospel, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul could say that through his ministry, many had come to faith in Christ. And one of those men, as we mentioned before, was Philemon. So, Onesimus and Philemon have one thing in common. Both came to faith in Christ through the ministry of Paul. So, both of them, by the same measure, are children of Paul, which obviously makes them brothers. Now, how else does, how else does Paul convey how he feels about Onesimus? Now, Paul says that he was useless, but now he is useful. Paul just simply writes the guy a recommendation. Now, I would never just write a recommendation for someone. I would have to be able to vouch for the person's character. Now, how would I be able to do that? Certainly not through second-hand knowledge. If so, someone else should give the recommendation. I would have to know of the person's character firsthand. Here's an application um, for you today. Allow people to know who you really are. Not because you might want them to write you a recommendation, but because community is a good thing with good benefits as well as opportunities to be a blessing. Now, I um, just recall, you know, Pastor Yogi, he has a business, and my kids, their first job, real kind of job, was to work in his business. He saw how they worked firsthand, and he was able to give my daughter, Rhea, a recommendation for her, first, for her next job. So there it is. Christian community is good, isn't it? Amen. Amen. Now, the word useless in the Greek, and I, I won't even pronounce it, 
is one that means he was a useless good for nothing. Paul does not sugarcoat things to make Onesimus look better than he was. He does not tell Philemon things like this. You know, um, he came from a dysfunctional family and has emotional issues, so we just need to pamper him. What he says is that he was useless. Useless was the past, but Paul then says he is useful. Present tense. At one point, Onesimus was good for nothing, but now he is good for something. Onesimus has dramatically changed, and now he is useful. He's valuable. He's a child of God. He's valuable to God. He's valuable to Paul, and he could be valuable to Philemon. Now, the same way Philemon, sorry, Onesimus dramatically changed, is the same way those of us who are believers have changed. Our lives have changed when we came to Christ. Christian, you aren't the same person. God has given you a new heart. So Paul calls Onesimus useless. I would love to see him try that in 21st century Canada. He would be toast. Let's face it. In God's world, we are interested in truth. Not only that, but there's nothing better than hearing salvation stories. The contrast between who we were and what we have now become. That fills us with worship. Let's not rob ourselves of the opportunity to worship our Father. If the man was useless, the man was just useless. How else does Paul convey how he feels about Onesimus? Paul says he's sending his very heart. Verse 12 says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Now, I hope you know that Paul was not having an easy time in life. He was sitting in jail, not in the Ritz Carlton, probably thinking about unfinished kingdom work. He had been persecuted, alone, left to his thoughts, but God provided a very special man. And it was difficult for him to say goodbye to him. Paul wanted Philemon to understand it hurt his heart to have to send Onesimus back. Now, according to Roman law, if a slave ran away from his master and someone took the slave in, that person became accountable to reimburse the master. What does Paul do? Paul abides by the laws of society, even though he would have loved to have Onesimus stay. He sent him back to Philemon because he was the one who had been wronged. As difficult as it was, it was the right thing to do. So what does a good appeal look like? We tell how we feel about a person. Next, we show there's an opportunity to, go, to do good. Verse 13 and 14. It says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. 
but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that, and here it comes, your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. It was a major sacrifice for Paul to send Onesimus back because he had been such great help to him. Onesimus probably tried to carry on the gospel ministry while Paul was imprisoned. He had been a slave to Philemon and apparently he willingly made himself available for the kingdom of God and as a blessing to Paul. Now it is clear from the text that Paul had a good relationship with Philemon, that he knew if Philemon were in Rome, he would do everything he could to help Paul. Verse 13 says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Onesimus has, had done just that. Now notice, um, Paul is not compelling Philemon to do anything. He wants things done of his own free will. Now, the word free will in the Greek, and I'm not going to pronounce it, means of Philemon's willing and voluntary choice. Paul appeals to Philemon to do good. What is this good that he's appealing for him to do? Verse 18b tells us, it says, Receive him as you would receive me. So we are examining what a good appeal looks like and we have seen so far, we tell how we feel about the person, we show that it's an opportunity to do good, next we remind that we are a part of the same spiritual family. Verse 15 to 17 says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might give him back, sorry, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Now, this whole situation with Philemon put Paul in a real predicament, as I said before. What does he say to a master who is outraged? who has been wronged. Terrible remedies were provided under Roman law for the masters of runaway slaves. A slave might be scourged, mutilated, crucified, or thrown to wild animals. But guess what? Philemon was more than a Roman citizen, just as Onesimus was more than a slave. These facts, these facts changed the situation dramatically and gave Philemon, sorry, Paul, a gospel-centered basis of appeal. It gave Paul a gospel-centered basis of appeal. So what is there for us to learn from this? Let's live the gospel. At the foot of the cross, we are all looking up. We all need grace. Let's strive to treat each other on the basis of our brotherhood, in Christ. Now, um, in verses 15, 16, and 17, as I read earlier, Paul uses phrases such as beloved brother in the Lord. He says, your partner. And he also says, 
as you would receive me. Paul wanted Philemon to appreciate Onesimus. He wanted him to appreciate his true value as a believer. You see, even though society at that time may have regarded him as a slave, in God's eyes, he was a free man. And also, the believer who was not a slave had no right to look down on the Christian slave because the free man was Christ's servant also. So those who owned slaves were to recognize that they also had a master in heaven. Now at the same time, a new position in Christ did not give Christian slaves the right to be disrespectful. Slaves were to obey their masters with a sincere heart out of devotion to the Lord. Now, I mean, Pastor Sheehan dealt with um, slavery last week, so I won't get into it. So um, today we do not own slaves. Well, at least I hope so. But we do sometimes undervalue those around us. Although sin and character flaws may have rendered some unprofitable servants, in a sense, these same people were so valuable that Christ shed his blood for them. I want you to notice in verse 15, Paul recognizes the sovereignty and providence of God. The verse says, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. So, though Philemon lost a slave, and likely even money, and his reputation as a slave owner, God used this to bring Onesimus to salvation and reunite them as brothers. This is such an encouragement for us. There are so many things that we feel we have lost. But God is in control. There are so many things we wished we had. But God is in control. What we need to hear are the same words Paul says to Philemon. Perhaps this is why. Perhaps God is using your loss. Perhaps he's using your situation for your good and for the joy of others. So we have examined what a good appeal looks like and we have seen, we tell how we feel about a person, we show that it's an opportunity to do good. We remind, we remind that we're part of the same spiritual family. Secondly, point two, the question we'll examine is, what does forgiveness look like? In this letter to Philemon, I believe Paul is appealing for him to forgive one us. No, Paul never once mentions that word in the passage, he kind of just trusts that Philemon will get the memo. It is as if Paul is convinced Philemon will figure it out. Now, while I was preparing this message, I was listening to a sermon and realized that Paul does not tell Philemon why he should forgive, at least not here in this epistle. Somehow he assumes Philemon has good theology on forgiveness. Now, I'm not going to be so bold as to assume that we know 
why we should forgive. So here are some reasons. And guess what? They're all from the word of God. We don't want man's wisdom here. We want to hear from our father. First one. And I'm going to kind of just quickly shoot through these. So um, they're on the screen. If you want, you can take a picture, write them down, whatever. A lack of forgiveness is forbidden in scripture. Matthew 5, 21 and 22 it says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Brothers and sisters, friends, it's not murder alone that is forbidden by scripture. It includes hate, holding malice, anger, wrath, a desire for vengeance and unforgiveness. All of these are forbidden by God. So you and I might think we are getting along real fine because we have not murdered. But scripture is saying we should not entertain emotions or attitudes that are the starting point to taking someone's life. Why should we forgive? Because when you offend someone, you have offended God by a much greater measure. And if God forgave you, why shouldn't you not forgive the other person? Um, this reminds me of a message I preached some time ago on Psalm 51. And verse 4 it says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is David speaking. Now it's not that David didn't sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. But his sin was ultimately against a holy God. Why should we forgive? You will not enjoy forgiveness from your heavenly Father. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. You can read that when you get home. Why forgive? You risk losing your communion with Christian community. The verse, the, the verse is there, Matthew 18, 21, 30, 21 to 35, the passage rather. Now, quickly, this is a passage of a servant who was forgiven by his master and in return flatly refused to forgive. Now, listen to what happens to him in verse 31. And it says, When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. What did they do? In today's words, they brought a class action lawsuit against the unforgiving servant. Now, who wants to be in the company of someone who does wrong, is forgiven, and then finds it difficult to forgive others? Anybody here likes to be in that, the, per, the company of that person? No hands? Don't be shy. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, you will not enjoy communion with God or fellow Christians if you are unwilling to forgive. Why should we forgive? Because if you seek revenge instead of offering forgiveness, you are in practice saying you are a more just judge than God. You are saying, God, your way is suboptimal. Your timing is lethargic. You don't have my best interest in mind. God, you need some help. Romans 12, 14 and 19. And I'll read them quickly. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will, I will repay. Why do we forgive? Because unforgiveness makes you unfit for worship. Boy, boy, that, that one hit hard. Matthew 5, 23, 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and they, and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. God is saying, don't worship me before you are fully reconciled with your Christian brother or sister. We repeat these verses each time we participate in Holy Communion. Don't take this exhortation lightly. Please don't. Last one. Why do we forgive? Because your sufferings, trials, temptations are God's grace to you. Now that kind of sounds crazy, but they are. Romans 5, 34. Sorry, Romans 5, verse 3 and 4. Not only that, it reads, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So your suffering is not to be used for you to seek justice. God will bring justice in his way and in his time. Instead, instead, see them as spiritual weights of grace, producing spiritual muscle growth. See them as spiritual weights of grace producing spiritual muscle growth. They are not given to you by God for you to fail or to punish you. You can, through the power of the Holy Spirit, choose to respond in forgiveness. Or you could choose to be led by the flesh and respond in a wrong way. So we breeze through why we should forgive. Now let me see if I can answer the question I asked earlier. What does forgiveness look like? First thing is that we receive the person back into relationship. Verse 18b says, receive him as you would receive me. Now this is how we respond to someone who seeks our forgiveness. We receive the person. No cutting them off. When the offending person seeks forgiveness, the first thing you do is to receive that person. A willingness to close the relational gap. A willingness to heal the wound. To bring the person back into relationship. Juanissimus qualifies here. Now, the scene before us, I don't know if you thought much about it, is really dramatic. This slave comes back to his master after running away. And presents him with a letter. Crazy. And Philemon is reading the letter. With the slave standing in front of him. Philemon is thinking, I should just wipe him off the face of the earth. Dispatch him from my presence. That is Philemon's flesh speaking. One is Simus on the other hand is saying, What on earth have I done? Coming back to this guy 
with only a piece of paper. At least I should have money to pay him back. Kind of do my part. I've done a dangerous thing by coming back. But then he pauses. And he says, you know what? It is the most righteous thing also to come back humble, empty-handed, penitent, to face the one who I have wronged. Now, how do we know from the passage that Onesimus is repentant? That he's a transformed man. First thing is that he risks his life by returning. Next, Paul lays his reputation on the line by sending him with our letter of recommendation. Now, what about those who don't seek our forgiveness? Do we ignore them? I thought out your answers. Do we ignore them? No, no, we don't ignore them. The word tells us to forgive 70 times 7. So it means, in a sense, that they're not going to come back to you and ask for forgiveness. But you need to forgive. The word also tells us that as much as it is up to us, we should live at peace with all men. Now, I have a quick story to tell you. So when I got saved, um, well, back up a bit. So I was, um, my mom died in childbirth, and I grew up with my stepmom and my dad. And, you know, things were really rocky. And once I hit teenage, and certainly when I went to college, my stepmom and I had a bad relationship, and it was mostly my doing. I mean, I would just flatly just cuss her out. So long and short is that when I became saved, um, when God saved me, there was this desire for me to just reach out and to mend the relationship, and I did that. Now, she is a Christian, and when I reached out, I was actually looking for her to tell me to get away from her presence. And you know what she said? She said these words, Sean, you are forgiven. That's all she said. That is where our heart should be when people reach out for forgiveness. So first, we receive the person back into relationship with us. Next, we restore them to service. Verse 11 and 15. It says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. So, Onesimus is back, and Paul wants Philemon to receive him no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. So there's no question that Paul believed in the providential sovereignty of God, even in the matter of something that was sinful. As I mentioned before, Onesimus possibly had stolen from Philemon, but God had saved him. And now Paul believed that God may have been sovereignly working behind the scenes for the good of Philemon. Instead of having a relationship with a slave, God had used these events so now these two could be brothers. Can you imagine what would have gone through the minds of those knowing the full story? If Philemon takes Onesimus back, God looks absolutely good. 
How about us? Are we willing to do that for ourselves to decrease and for God to increase? I mean, Philemon could have done something um, different. You know, he could have stuck with the times. You know, he could have done what the Roman law would have prescribed, but he didn't. He chose love, not the like. And there's a song from a Jamaican that says, him do it for the love, him not do it for the likes. I don't know if you know that song. But he didn't do it for a big up on Instagram. He did it because he loved. He wanted to love God and love his neighbor. So we have looked at, we receive the person back into relationship. We restore them to service. And finally, there's restitution. Restitution for the wrong done. Verse 17 to 18. It says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. No. Restitution is always the final component of forgiveness. Onesimus must show his genuineness by being willing to repay, willing to restore. But guess what? All he has is what? A piece of? So how is he going to pay the debt? You know, in Israel, there were laws of restitution. The Old Testament laid them out. Justice demanded full Restitution. It would have been right for Philemon to say, dock his wages. That would be justice. That would not be wrong. But neither is it wrong to be gracious. But in order to make this relationship complete, since Onesimus couldn't pay, someone had to pay in his place. Paul pays the debt for Onesimus. Here Paul offers himself as a substitute to pay the debt. This is Paul, in a Christ-like way, bringing together the last part of the restored relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. What a parallel we have with the gospel way of salvation. As human beings, we belong to God. But as sinners, we have robbed him and we are fugitives. Our guilt is great and our penalty is death. The law condemns us, but grace gives us the right of appeal. As Onesimus found refuge with Paul, so we find refuge with Jesus. Just as Paul took on Onesimus' debt, saying to Philemon, put that to my account. So has our Lord graciously taken upon himself all our debt, wiping it out once and for all. And now, just as Onesimus became reconciled in heart to Philemon and voluntarily returned to his owner, so have we become reconciled to God and of our own free will, no longer rebels, rebels, but redeemed. How about those of us here today who are still rebels, 
those who have not been redeemed. There's an opportunity for you to be reconciled to God today. If this is something you want to explore, chat with me or the person who invited you after the service. And thanks be to God, there are those here today who can repeat this old Baptist hymn. Free from the law, O happy condition, Jesus hath bled and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, grace hath redeemed me once and for all. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we, we thank you for this time that we have had sitting under your word. Lord, it's easy for us to just um, forget about it as we go through these doors. But we know you are all-powerful. Father, I pray that you would, um, during the course of the day, during the course of this week, bring the words to the memory of all of us here and help us, Lord, not to just be hearers of your word, but to be doers also. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit hopetorontonorth.com.